0: Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, how much do we value truth? Ken will delve into this question and provide insight for us on part one of two on an intellectual code of conduct. Ken, maybe you can tell us the reason uh, this subject matter has come to our attention.
1: Well, Joe, I'm working on a, a new book. As you know, uh, it is uh, the working title right now is On Thinking Well. And, uh, you know, I kind of see it as a handbook for uh, logic and learning, things that I think are really very important to Christians. And as I was preparing the manuscript, working on various chapters and things of that nature, um, you know, it, it it struck me that uh, how important it is to be able to uh, communicate to people that we care about the truth, and it is very easy, I think. And and you know, this is kind of an amazing thing, but I I still think it's true. Um, I think it's possible to you know to have good intentions uh, and yet maybe engage in intellectual activities that are not consistent with those good intentions. Mm. Uh, And so I want to talk a little bit about why I think uh, a passion for the truth can really help us in in, uh, discovering truth and also in sharing, you know, our worldview and our values with other people that may not share them.
0: Sounds good. Well, let's get started.
1: Well, I I came across some time ago a quotation from Mortimer J. Adler, and those who listen regularly to our podcasts know that Adler is a was a mover and a shaker in the 20th century. He lived almost the entire century. I think he was born in um, 1902 and died in 2001. And uh, some of our listeners have heard me say that I had a very brief but but very fulfilling uh, email interaction with uh, with Dr. Adler not too long before he passed away. And so Adler's written a number of books, including a book that changed my intellectual life entitled How to Read a Book. And I often say on social media that two people taught me to read, my, my mother, Violet Samples, and Mortimer Adler. Um, and Adler has a, a quotation that I love from a from a follow-up book. There was a follow-up book to How to Read a Book, and it's entitled How to Speak, How to Listen. Um, and and Joe, there as an editor, Adler is emphasizing the idea of these kind of these language arts that you you read and you write, uh, you speak and you listen, and of course. Interestingly enough, he says the one that's the hardest to learn is listening, and we get the least instruction about that in in schools. So so maybe we can't blame people that they're not good listeners, because uh, maybe our school system hasn't emphasized that point. But here's a point that Adler makes in his book, How to Speak, How to Listen. And here he is distinguishing the philosopher from the sophist. And I'll tell you all about uh, the context of that. But Adler writes this. He says, the line that Plato drew to distinguish the sophist from the philosopher, both, both equally skilled in argument, put the philosopher on the side of those who devoted, who devoted to the truth would not misuse logic or rhetoric to win an argument by means of deception, misrepresentation, or other trickery. Now, I'm always struck by that um, because there was a community of thinkers in ancient Athens living at the time of Socrates. And and of course, uh, Plato tells us most of what we know about Socrates comes through Plato, not exclusively. There are other sources. And so we have good reason to believe that Socrates was a, a real historical person and not just a Fictional character that the storyteller Plato uh, created. Uh, I, I sometimes tell my students that if Plato were alive today, he'd work for Disney. He's a storyteller. He's always, he, when he does philosophy, unlike his student Aristotle, Aristotle writes these long and intense, you know, philosoph- philosophical treaties. And Aristotle's harder to get through, but Plato is always giving you a story. And out of the story, and of course, I think uh, I think arguably the the greatest philosophical story ever told is Plato's allegory of the cave, where he tells you a story, and it you never you're never able to get away from it because it kind of haunts you. Well, uh, Plato is of course telling us about his hero, his hero is Socrates. And there is this community called the sophist. And of course, today, that term has a, a negative uh, component to it. If you're a sophist, you know, you're, you're not really a person who cares for truth. You're, you're in it for the money, or you're in it for the power, or you're in it for the influence. Well, what's interesting is that there was a community of thinkers. Uh, at the time of Socrates, and they were labeled the sophist by Plato. Um, and there were things that uh, Plato and Socrates came to learn about this group of individuals that they thought were, was, a, was a real problem. Uh, the, for example, there's the famous quotation. Uh, it is said, it um, is uh, it is said that the sophists were able to make the worse argument appear the better. Hmm. They were able to make the worse argument appear the better. Now, that's what kind of jumped out at me as I was uh, working on my new manuscript. That, you know, it is, it is possible to kind of create an argument, and um, it's also possible to, uh, to be disingenuous in an argument. I mean, you, if you're careful enough, if you if you know enough about logic and rhetoric, use of language, the the goal of persuasion, if you know enough about that, you can kind of conceal certain things and emphasize other things. And I think that's largely what that quotation means, that, that the Sophists were just as good as, they were just as skilled as Socrates or Plato. When it came to logic and rhetoric, but the difference between Socrates and Plato, on one side, and the Sophists on the other, is that Socrates uh, and and Plato they were they simply could not allow themselves to try to win an argument by engaging in deception, misrepresentation, and trickery. And you know what's What's interesting is the more you study about logic, like I just finished a chapter on deduction, induction, and abduction, and, you know, these three ways of reasoning and how they go at things and their strengths and their weaknesses, it just struck me that uh, these are, these are forms of reasoning, they're, they're, they are a powerful way of reasoning, but then there's my character. There's my there's my knowledge of logic, and and persuasion of uh, rhetoric. But then there's my character. And uh, what stands out is that Socrates would not engage that way. Um, you know, he thought that he thought that truth uh, stood uh, as being much more important. And of course, I think, I think that our present culture, what you might call our kind of postmodern era, if you will, some would call it a post-Christian era. Lots of terms come to apply. Uh, sometimes they talk about the woke culture, all of these kind of ideas filtering down. And philosophical ideas never stay in the elite universities. They always filter into culture it's usually a decade or two after, but they somehow, you know, come, you know, they, they start uh, in Princeton, but they make it down to, you know, your, your local residence. And I think that a lot of the ideas that are streaming through our culture these days, uh, ideas like moral relativism, relativism as to truth, uh, maybe the, there is no Objective truth. There's only subjective truth. There's only there's no there's no truth. It's Joe's truth or Dave's truth or Ken's truth. Well, I think we've seen all that before. I think I think Socrates bumped into that 2,500 years ago.
2: Isaiah said, Isaiah spoke of this when he spoke about lawyers who justify the wicked for gain.
1: Well, and this this idea it certainly goes all the way back to, you know, to creation that human beings human beings who are highly skilled, let's say intellectually skilled, um, they have to ask themselves the question. I think at some point, am I going to use all of this skill and talent that I have? discovered or been taught? Am I going to use it for good? Or am I going to use it for my own benefit? Or am I going to use it for the benefit of my clients? Um, You know, you've raised, Dave, the law. Um, I certainly think that a person who has been charged with a crime, whether it's a civil or a criminal crime, they are deserving of, uh, of a defense, a vigorous defense. But there are times where I wonder, are they, is it possible in a courtroom to play fast and loose with facts and things of that nature? And um, I have one lawyer friend on Facebook, and he said, look, if I don't, uh, if I don't rigorously defend my client, I can be brought up on charges and thinking, OK, uh, I want you to ri- rigorously defend your client, but it needs to be done honestly, right? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the sophists. Uh, but le- let me pause and see, Joe or Dave, anything you want to talk about before we get into some of the ideas between Socrates and the sophists?
0: I'm fine. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm anticipating where you're going, so I'm going to wait.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, now I'm going to say that I think that Socrates and and Christian theists are on one side. I think that if there's a side to be taken here, uh, I think Christian theists are going to basically say that that Socrates' approach is much more consistent with a biblical, historic Christian worldview. And I think on the other side, I think that the sophists, their belief system is closer to what I would call a secular postmodern approach. Now, now again, I don't want to stack the deck. I have to be careful here in recognizing that um, some of this is interpretation. Some of this is my way of kind of looking at it, but I do think that these ideas pop out, and so as we start talking about this, I want you to be aware, uh, see if what the sophists were arguing sounds a whole lot like what you're hearing in culture today.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay, well, we're going to focus on the question of truth. For Socrates, he thought that truth was objective. There was real truth uh, this is true for Socrates. It's later true for Plato. It's later true for Aristotle. They thought that there was truth in the world. Uh, it was out there. It was it was mind independent, if you will. Philosophers talk about something being mind independent. That is, it's out there. It's not something I bring to. It's something that I find out there. So he thought that truth was objective. Um, Yeah, there's always going to be some personal application, but he thought that there wasn't truth for you or truth for me. Um, He thought that there was truth. And so it it had an objective nature. Um, He also, like the Greek philosophers, thought that this truth was built into the reality of the world. So, he's going to argue that also it's absolute. Um, It's not relative. It's an absolute truth. It's an objective truth. It's out there. It's mind independent. And of course, the remarkable thing is he thought it was knowable. Uh, Somehow, maybe the gods made human beings capable of of knowing the truth. Uh, Aristotle would say, a generation or two later, that uh, humans always desire to know. They have this. They uh, I think Arist. If I think if we brought Aristotle to the present and introduced to him the idea of human exceptionalism, I think he would totally accept it. He thought humans had this capacity to know and wanted to know. Now, now remember, part of where Christians and Greeks are going to differ is the Greek thinkers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they don't believe in a radical fall. They don't think human beings are are fallen. Uh, Human beings may lack wisdom. Human beings may be in the dark, but there's no catastrophic fall. I mean, Aristotle essentially thought that uh, there were moral principles, and if you practice them, they could become yours. Um, You know, he thought that human beings who decided to be virtuous and moral, it was achievable. And um, again, I think that's part of the anthropology of the Greeks. So for Socrates, truth is objective. It's out there. It's absolute. It's not relative to each individual. You can know it, and therefore it's discoverable. And uh, They would also say that truth itself, and I I think this is clearly where Christians would agree, uh, the great Christian philosophical tradition of the Middle Ages, for example, would agree with Plato and Socrates that truth is that which corresponds to reality. So if two plus two equals four, and I believe that to be true, then I believe the truth. Uh, So truth would be that which corresponds to reality. And and in Greek philosophy, for Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, um, truth is not just something that is about knowledge, it's about reality. Um, For example, the law of non-contradiction, nothing can both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect or a true statement cannot be both true and false at the same time in the same way. Aristotle is essentially saying the laws of logic apply not to just truth claims, they apply to reality. So, the Greeks really had this idea that there is, they lived in a, a world with truth. Now, Plato is going to say, you're going to have to move beyond this world because this world is kind of a shadow. It's kind of a Xerox copy of the reality. The reality are these eternal forms. Aristotle is going to break with uh, Plato at that point and say, no, uh, I think the, the essences are not in the world of forms. They're here. But it's interesting to me that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle are pagan Greek philosophers, but I think Christians now can and I think should look at them as allies. They believe many things, and, and of course, what's interesting about that question, uh, I hear I, I hear it often that um, you know I'm on social media and I remember interacting with a couple. People and they said, Oh, Ken, your problem is you're Augustinian. And so you're a Platonist. You you've you put pagan philosophy, you've you've adopted Plato instead of Moses. Mm-hmm. So I I tried to come back at it and say, well, well, look, um, I, I realized that pagans had a lot of false beliefs, and I realized they engaged in some real immoral behaviors. But remember, everybody's made in the image of God, and everybody's a recipient of general revelation, and everybody has received common grace. So even non-Christians will get some things right. And of course, I think you see this even in the world's religions. As much as there are differences, all of the religions, for example, the major religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, the big five, if you will. They all have the second five of the Ten Commandments. Now, um, so the idea there is that the ancient Greeks thought that there was truth, and you could discover it, and human beings had the capacity to do that. So, So on one side of the ledger, we have Socrates, He believes truth is objective, it's absolute, it's knowable, it's discoverable, it corresponds to reality. And then he makes one more point. It's the proper object of life's pursuit. Mm. So for Socrates and Plato, uh, philosophy is not a subject or a topic you study in school. Philosophy is about a way of discovering the truth. It's a way of life. Uh, you're either truth oriented or you're something other than that can I can I pause for a moment question comment yeah, yeah I, I have
0: a question maybe you're gonna get to this but um, let's say someone says uh, I I believe what you're saying and and uh, I think that's what I uh, subscribe to however when it comes to certain practical things what is the difference between uh, this kind of truth you're talking about and and things that uh, seem to work for certain individuals and not for others for example there could be a medical treatment that works for one person but doesn't work for another person maybe a diet that works with one person not for another so someone might say whatever works for you and that seems to fall on the other side of the ledger which i know you're going to get to but um, is that, uh, you know, something that we need to, you know, think about or, or uh, is that a different category?
1: <laughs> well, uh, I, I think we could say, for example, let's, let, let me use the example of beauty. Um, I think that beauty is objective. I think that beauty, beauty is out there. I think it's mind independent. I think it is, it is knowable. It's discoverable. But I also think that there is a matter of taste. Um, You know, let's take music. Dave is, he likes classical music. Um, I like some classical music, but I I also like uh, rock and roll. Now, music, I would say, is part of those, it's part of that objective beauty. But your taste. Your, your personal satisfaction or fulfillment, that could be subjective. I mean, my, my wife, uh, if we were gonna take a, a vacation based on beauty, she wants to go to Yosemite, uh, Yellowstone. If I take a trip for beauty, I wanna to go to the Vatican. I wanna see Michelangelo. I wanna know what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. Now, uh, we're both after beauty, but the taste, the the personal application, um, so I don't think that I, I don't think that a objective subjective distinction rules out the idea that there can be personal applications or that certain things might be more appealing than than other things. Um, I still think beauty is objective. There's so much of it. It is, it's virtually everywhere, so many different kinds of it. And I don't find anybody who comes to the table and says, look, I I, I have no interest at all in beauty. Um, no, I think all of us recognize this big picture beauty, but then there's the personal applications mm-hmm. of, of this kind of thing. You know, certain clothing seems more appealing than other types of clothing. Uh, uh, maybe an automobile might be more appealing. Maybe a color might be more appealing. But I, I don't think, Joe, the, the applications or what, what may practically work rules out the idea that there's an objective reality. Mm-hmm. Does that help a little bit? Yes, yeah,
0: so that's, that's helpful, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Dave, before we look at the sophist in more detail, comments or questions?
2: Uh, just go ahead. It's great stuff
1: well let's then talk about the sophists. Um I, I want to say first of all that uh, they were they were skeptical they were skeptical of the idea that there can be an objective truth um, they were skeptical of they were skeptical of not only the gods right and 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 by the way did, did Plato and Socrates and Aristotle believe in the Greek gods Um I don't. I don't know what to say to that. Totally. I. I think uh, uh, my my old friend and teacher Ronald Nash thought Plato was a theist. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, uh, it's it's possible that they had views that are that are very different. Now, did Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates ever see a Bible? Did they ever see the Hebrew Old Testament? Ever come across the Torah? Probably not. Probably not. But if you start studying a little bit about what Plato believed about the form of the good, there are not just forms out there, these abstract realities. But then there's the form of the good. And the form of the good, by the way, has a lot of qualities that later people like Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas are going to attribute to God. So some people say Plato was a theist. Now, um, with all of that, of course, they believe there is this objective truth and human beings are here to discover it. The sophists are much more skeptical. They're skeptical about the gods, they're skeptical about morality, and they're especially skeptical about politics. They think that people are motivated not necessarily by what's true, and good and beautiful, they're motivated by what's in it for them. And the sophists, interestingly enough, uh, remember our quotation here from, from Adler, Adler says, the line that Plato drew to distinguish the sophists from the philosopher, both equally skilled in argument, both equally skilled in argument. He put the philosopher on the side of those who devoted to the truth would not misuse logic or rhetoric to win an argument by means of deception, misrepresentation, or other trickery? Now, I'm going to tell you that I'm committed to the truth, and I, I I want I want to be committed to to what's true and what's good and what's beautiful. But you know what? Sometimes I want to win an argument, or I put it even another way: sometimes I just cannot be comfortable at all with losing face in the front of other people. I mean, if somebody comes along and corrects me, uh, I think the good Ken Samples would say, you know what? I was wrong. And you've corrected me. You've helped me. You've helped me move toward the truth. But a lot of times, uh, my psychology my need for affirmation, my, my need to feel, to think that I'm held in high esteem, it may cause me to push back against you. Well, the sophists were very skeptical, skeptical of the gods, skeptical of objective reality, skeptical of the political system, And so they didn't think truth was objective. They thought it was subjective. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, I'm going to differ with that. I think Socrates is going to differ with that. You can have an objective beauty, and yet there can be this personal uh, sense of taste. So the Sophists thought that truth It was subjective, and it was relative. It changed from person to person, culture to culture. They also thought it was largely unknowable, and if not unknowable, very difficult, very difficult to know the truth. Uh, Moreover, they, they thought you could even invent it, and because they thought that you could invent it, they thought that you can use it, and so truth is... Is not so much a reality; it's something that's useful and workable. Now, now again, I uh, i mentioned a quotation from a Jewish scholar. He said that he said the Hebrews they learned in order to revere, to 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 learn. Um, it's all about reverencing Yahweh. You know, um, knowledge is found in the fear of the Lord. Uh, the same Jewish thinker said, but the ancient Greeks, they, they studied, they went to school in order to comprehend. Then the Jewish scholar said, but modern people, and I, I think he might have meant especially Americans, but definitely modern people, they learn in order to use. Uh, and of course, it's America that produced the philosophy of pragmatism, and, and, and if you say, look, if there is no God, or if you can't determine whether there's a God, or if you can't determine whether there is ultimate truth, then what, what comes down to you is, well, then let's do the practical thing. Let's do what's workable. Let's set our goals and try to achieve them. So the sophist truth is subjective rather than objective. It's relative. It changes Uh, maybe person to person, it's not knowable, or if it is knowable, it's very difficult and maybe impossible for most people. It may be invented, and rather than being part of reality, it's, it's workable, it's useful, and I think where they would come down, where I think our postmodern friends of today come down, they say that truth is not as important as power, so it's so it's not like the Athenians and their democracy. The, I mean, I mean, you gotta give it to the Greeks. I mean, we talk about these, we talk about the, you know, America being an exceptional nation or Great Britain being an exceptional nation. I think you have to look at the ancient world, and I think Hugh Ross is right here. Hugh often makes the point, particularly when it relates to ancient science. That the ancients did some things right; they had some insights. And you know, the Greeks—that's the birth of kind of democracy. Uh, maybe the first university, you know, is the Academy. But you know, the Chinese feel the same way about themselves. Hey, we've got this ancient culture, right? Well, the Greeks had a lot going on, but I think in some ways. Um, the postmodern culture overlaps a lot with the sophists. Hmm. They were as skeptical as our postmodern uh, people are. They were relativistic. Uh, they thought, look, um, you can't really know the truth or it's very difficult to know the truth. Uh, therefore, let's let's present things in such a manner that we get our side represented. Uh, And and if, and if it, if it calls for manipulation, if it calls for uh, intimidation, if it calls for trickery, oh, well, Uh, you know, I I think of the communists in the middle of the 20th century saying by any means necessary, we got to get this revolution going because the world's being oppressed by the capitalists. So let's do whatever we have to do, you know, and if some people are sympathetic to us, you know, that's kind of fine. So there is there is kind of laying it out for you. Uh, and again, some of these things I think are very ironic when people kind of press against the idea of, oh, that's pagan. I meet people quite a bit online, but I, I remember when I was uh, interacting a lot On on the subject of Seventh day Adventism, when I worked at the Christian Research Institute, I wrote primarily about two religious groups the Catholic Church and the Seventh day Adventist Church, which, ironically, even there, uh, RTB, excuse me, CRI didn't think that Catholicism or Adventism was a non Christian cult. Um, But in writing about those groups, I remember I would talk with Adventists, and they would say, the problem, Ken, with historic Christian theology is it has been contaminated by Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so this idea, again, now, now my comment would be, what's ironic is, you might think that Christian theology has been contaminated by people like Plato and Aristotle, but now I would tell you, if you're looking for an ally in the culture wars, it's Plato and Aristotle. Mm. It's, it's not postmodernism. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of sophistry. Well, let, let, me, let me stop and see if we can talk a bit about this. Before I have
2: a, a question. Um, where does imagination fit into this whole thing? When you think of truth and being objective and absolute and knowable, and yet we are uh, fans of C.S. Lewis, who emphasized the importance of the imagination, sort of in contrast to, uh, you know, uh, rational kind of thinking about things. How how do you sort of incorporate that without sort of leaking over into the sort of sophist viewpoint?
1: Yeah, well, you know, part of uh, part of Lewis's part of Lewis's presentation of of truth and reality is again the idea that um, he he talks about the he talks about reason and imagination, and um, you know, reason has to do, I think, with truth, and imagination has to do uh, with mm-hmm. meaning. Right. right, truth and meaning. I, I actually think, actually think Plato would agree with that. Um, uh, one of the interesting things is, I think that to some, res- in some ways, in some ways, I think that uh, C.S. Lewis would look at w- would look at Plato and see him as, you know, as as an ally. So, Dave, I don't think you. I don't think making a distinction between truth on one hand, which gets us into reality, and imagination on the other, which kind of gives us the the meaning or this this kind of intuition in in seeing things, I don't think that that has to lead you towards sophistry.
2: Well, it kind of um, frees you a little bit from strict logic, does it not?
1: Well, um, what's interesting here, of course, is um, you know when you think about how people are persuaded. I mean, Dave, you're a math person. You're a math science person. Um, you know, I'm I'm more of a logic person. Although I have to recognize that at some point. Logic gets mathematical. I mean, if you look at Bayesian induction, it there are a lot of mathematics in it. If you look at other forms of deduction, there are mathematical elements in it. There is kind of the nuts and bolts of what I would call kind of basic or traditional logic, but there there certainly is that side where it is it's heavily it's heavily rational. Um, but I think, what, I, think what Sock, I think what Lewis was getting at is that we're more than just a mind. And, and to be persuaded of something, uh, I think we have to be persuaded in terms of, uh, well, to use again the language of Aristotle, you know, logos, ethos, and pathos. There's the logic, the logos, but there's also the ethos, the moral, character. If I want to persuade you, I have to have a, you have to believe me. You have to trust me. To trust me, you have to think that I have some sense of goodness. And then, of course, Aristotle says, but then there's the pathos. There is reaching in and uh, touching the, the emotional side of life. And Aristotle certainly thought that all of those things are involved in persuasion
2: i think a lot of scientists are nervous when someone tries to use imagination to communicate certain ideas and so on because they think that because it's it's not hard facts necessarily it it you can have the wool pulled over your eyes kind of idea and be led into thinking something that, you know, they kind of put it in the category of faith.
1: Yeah, I I I think I think you're I think you're right in your perception of that. I, I think that there are I think there are science-minded people that, you know, this idea of imagination, I mean, you know, when Lawrence Krauss says that the ultimate arbiter of truth is experiment. Which is a self-defeating idea. Um, he, didn't, he never got that from an experiment. That's an idea um, that he came up with. Now, he might think that what's come out of experimentation is workable, and I certainly think that that's correct. But I, I, think, I think what uh, Krauss is trying to communicate is, look, I don't want my views to be based upon beliefs either you know, emotional, or religious, or whatever they may be, superstitious. I want them to be based on reality. Now, um, though I agree with you, Dave, I I think there is an exception to that rule, and I think that's Einstein. Einstein actually talked about imagination and how important he thought it was in kind of, you know, uh, trying to discover reality, but you know what I what I think uh, what I think is interesting about Albert Einstein is I think that he grew a lot. I think that as he got older, I mean most of his great works of accomplishment come in his what his 20s, late 20s. Uh, but as he grows older, I think he has a lot of sophistication in terms of you know we, um, we want to we want to have a philosophy of life that has that has meaning that in, that would include imagination. So I've seen quotes by Einstein where I think he could probably offer some helpful correction to some um, very secular uh, scientists of our day.
2: What what does, uh, you know, uh, sort of a related issue is that of intuition intuition seems to be something almost above the mind in the sense that it's it's sort of an insight an understanding that that isn't necessarily something you can work out logically but but yet senses the truth how does how does that play into this whole picture
1: well i've always thought uh, i've always thought it's helpful to think about uh you know, when, when you think about reason, uh, there are things that are based upon reason. And so that's kind of the, the rational side, facts, evidence, reason, arguments. Then, of course, there is the irrational, the unreasonable. And that's when you're influenced by bias and prejudice, uh, or you know, you, you've, you've played fast and loose with the facts. But then there is the non-rational. So the rational, the irrational. Now the non-rational. I would say the non-rational fits more with your idea of intuition. Mm. And I think it's. I think it's right. Um, I. I think it. I think you see it in mathematicians. I think you see it in scientists. I think you see it in philosophers. I, I think you see it in. You know. Uh, policemen, detectives who are trying to figure out a crime. I think sometimes there you have intuitive ideas. Uh, These are ideas that are kind of, they're not based on, they're not directly connected to reason, but they're compatible with reason. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of a, it's kind of an aha. It's kind of a, almost a visionary kind of, oh, and Again, if I go back to Einstein, I, I get that impression that some of his some of his scientific thinking he thought was first an intuition, and then only later was he able to kind of, you know, write it down and then put it to the test and actually see that he had he was on to something. Um, and of course, from a Christian point of view, I think of uh, I, I think of uh, Blaise Pascal. You know, Pascal says, the heart has reasons the mind doesn't know, that there's something deeper inside us, mm. and, it's, and it's not merely cerebral, and I, I have no wish to downgrade the mind uh, or reason, and, and I certainly think if you have an intuition that ultimately ends up logically contradictory, uh, and I mean, if it's genuinely contradictory, then I, then I think it's not a good intuition. But I, I do think that there has been in uh, intellectual circles for a very long time, the idea that that perception or awareness can run deeper than just the, just the mental, just the rational side of life.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I have a question, uh, Ken. Um, somebody might say, the reason I'm in the uh, unknowable column uh, truth being unknowable is because there there are lots of things we just don't know and they let's say the person is a skeptic they might say you as a christian would have to admit that there are lots of mysteries including the nature of god uh the, the trinity and two natures of christ so are there limits to truth and where does mystery play in yeah that's
1: that's that's a very important component in, in all of this. I, I think that, um, you know, certainly by the time we get to the Middle Ages, by the time philosophy is kind of, uh, philosophy and theology have kind of overlapped with one another, so you have people like Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas who are who are thinking about uh, philosophy from a Christian point of view, they would readily admit that God is infinite and eternal. We're finite and temporal. Therefore, finite creatures who are temporal creatures, we're never going to understand God. We're never going to be able to fully comprehend God. There is going to be mystery. Uh, Now, of course, they're going to argue that uh, that mystery may be above reason, but it doesn't do any damage to reason. So, you know, I argue that the Trinity is just not a contradiction. It, it, it's clearly stated throughout Christian history. It's one what and three whos. It's God is one in category A, three in category B. It's not A and non-A. God's oneness is different than his threeness. His threeness is different than his oneness. Um, now, do I comprehend the Trinity? Do I understand how God could be one in essence or being, but three in subsistence or personhood? I don't. And of course, Thomas Aquinas would say all of our language about God uh, is analogical. It's not, it's, it, it should never be equivocal, where we're talking two different things, but it's never univocal. For him, it is analogical. When we think of God as Father, He's both like our earthly father and unlike, and so you have an analogy, if you will. Um, Let me come back to your point, and I I think because I think it does relate not only to the Sophists and Socrates, but it relates to Christians and our our present postmodern culture. I don't think to say that truth is knowable means that we can we can uh, suck the marrow out of it. Uh, I I don't think when you say you can know the truth, I don't think you're committing yourself to the idea that you can know it totally and exhaustively and and fully. Uh, and here I'm going to use an analogy from science. I mean quantum mechanics. Uh, you know I think when I hear Feynman. Richard Feynman? Is it Richard Feynman? Yes. When, when I hear lectures from Richard Feynman, or I follow qu- quotations from him about quantum mechanics, he talks very intelligently. He seems like he has some real insight to what quantum mechanics is all about. But then he'd immediately turn around and say, it's deeply mysterious. Or, you know, Big Bang Cosmology. It it seems to me that it it is a very thoughtful, reflective, careful model uh, of the origin of our universe, and yet it has a lot of mystery connected to it. So, Joe, I don't think saying that truth is knowable means that you uh, are going to exhaust it or that you have to know everything about it. I mean, um, we can know things without committing ourselves to the idea that we don't have any limitations uh, or that knowledge of that is going to elude us. And and of course, from a Christian point of view, and I think it would be true of a Jewish point of view as well, and maybe to some extent it would be a Muslim uh, perspective, and, and that is that that faith means that you have to have humility, that, you know, God is different than you are, and you do have limitations, and, and therefore what you need is humility, but also a commitment to never, never giving up, Mm
0: -hmm. you
1: know, put, I want to push the envelope, but I want to do it in such a way as I recognize, you know, these ideas of mystery, and Uh, What comes out of that is, of course, interesting from my point of view. uh, When it comes to apologetics, whenever I talk with anybody who I know is a non-Christian, and we get into the question of whether Christianity is true, I want to always give them the impression, and and I try to work very hard to show them, no, no, Christianity is reasonable. But I might be making a mistake if I don't. Then Joe say to them, "Now look, I do believe Christianity is reasonable. I I believe in a reasonable faith, but I also need to be aware that um, there are there are limitations to my reason. There is a divine, a divinely revealed mystery that I cannot fully and exhaustively comprehend. And you know." Um, even when you think about evangelism and of course that reasons to believe we talk a lot about evangelism we talk about uh, apologetics we talk about persuasion and sharing our faith with other people and trying to uh, be a you know faithful people and uh, being committed to the Great Commission but I think all of us would realize that you um, it's not just about presenting arguments or evidence. Um, I, I, would, I think, I, I, don't know, I don't know what Hugh Ross would necessarily, how he would approach the topic, but I think God has to do something.
2: It seems like the, a key idea here in this context is that in, in regards to knowing anything about God, we wouldn't know anything if God didn't reveal himself. If he didn't reveal himself in nature intentionally, and if he didn't reveal himself in his word intentionally, that we wouldn't really know anything about God.
1: I think that's right. And I, I think what I think the biblical religions, uh, and here I mean Judaism and Christianity, they're revelatory religions. And the way I try to, the way I talk about it in my book. Um, Christianity cross-examined is I say, look, uh, you need three things. You you need um, you, you need the right world. Then you need the right human beings with the right mind and the right the right uh, sensory organs, and then you need, um, you know, a rational message coming from the outside. And I think that. Uh, I think God made us the kind of people who could comprehend the world, not exhaustively, but we, we could track the intelligibility to, to use the language of Paul Davies, the, the distinguished physicist. He says, you know, the world is intelligible. And, and of course, I think that points to God. That points the fact that our minds, our limited minds, our finite minds can actually to some extent, track the intelligibility of the universe, I think that's a sign that that an intelligent mind created the universe and created us. Otherwise, it's just the most incredible lucky accident ever.
0: Mm. Uh, Ken, I have one more question on the idea of uh, persuasion that you were talking about a few moments ago. Uh, kind of a practical question. Let's say somebody's listening, and they're a Christian very concerned about evangelism. They have people in their lives, perhaps family members or friends, that they want to persuade of the truth of the Christian faith. Um, Nevertheless, they're wary of uh, politicians and marketers and, you know, all these slick things that you were talking about before. Is there any harm in someone saying, look, maybe I should take a class to become a better public speaker or learn rhetoric or something, can I be a better persuader of the truth? How would you
1: yeah. advise somebody along those lines? Oh, that's good, Joe. I Look, I think that there are certain qualities that make our message more attractive. Um, I think, for example, if Christians demonstrate to other people, particularly people who are atheists or people in other religious worldviews, I think if we convey to them that we are people who love the truth. So we, we don't manipulate the truth. You know, if we say something and then we discover, well, we were wrong, the message we communicated was incorrect, it was false, then I think I think we can do a, a lot of good in our reputation. Um, encouraging people maybe to prize the idea of Christianity, is that we're truth seekers. And uh, when we are wrong, we correct it, you know. Uh, You know, when you write a book, you know, sometimes there are mistakes and you have to come out and say, sorry, I, I made that mistake and it wasn't the editors and it wasn't my proofreaders or my peer review. I'm the name on the book and I got it wrong. Um, Now, of course, I have a psychology, Joe, where I kind of would like to sidestep all that. You know, I think being truth, I think being viewed as people who think truth is sacred goes a long way in impressing people. Now, you've mentioned the question, how do we sharpen our communication skills? Well, I can have a really good message, but if the message in my book is filled with uh, run-on sentences and sloppy grammar and misspelled words, uh, somebody's going to pick it up and say, well, you know, Ken might have good intentions, but this, this is really poorly done. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong whatsoever with using and developing skills of communication and persuasion. I think where we have to be careful is remember the sophists. They were just as good as Socrates mm-hmm. at argument and reason, but see, they their conscience allowed them to make the worse argument appear the better because they thought it's a it's all about what works. It's all about, um, you know, it, it it is it's all about what I can get out of it. So. No, I completely agree. I I think Christians should strive toward excellence. I think Christians uh, should give people the impression. um, uh, And again, you know, there are non-Christians who sometimes say, look at the way Christians deal with issues. Uh, They, you know, they don't think carefully about their political theories or You know, they engage in certain behaviors where they deny science, you know, it's clear as the, you know, the nose on your face and yet they're denying all these kinds of things. I think we want to communicate to non-Christians that we love the truth and that we care so much about it. We have taken the appropriate steps to try to communicate it in the most uh, forceful way, the most skilled way. Um, and, and and I think that's where I want to come down on this discussion. What I want to say, Joe and Dave, is I think that the true philosopher, and if you don't like the word philosopher, then put in there Christian. You know, the, the true Christian is committed to truth, that which corresponds to reality, and that we value truth over winning. You know, uh, sometimes you can make a winning proposal, but in the end, it, it's not true. I can manipulate the facts. I mean, I, I mean, I can work as a journalist and engage in yellow journalism. Um, I can create fake news. I can, I can do all of that. Or I can say, look, uh, I'll let you interpret it, but this is the data. This is this, These are the data points. How you want to interpret them, that's going to be on you. But as a journalist, I, I want to give you the facts. And I, I'm, I'm going to try to be aware that I not contaminate the objective facts with my own subjective motives and intentions. So again, I'm going to argue that the true philosopher or the true Christian or the person who is truly committed to truth they're not going to value they're, they're going to value truth over winning. And they're going to practice intellectual honesty. Uh, and they're going to ha- they're going to strive to moral integrity. And they're going to, they're going to work at a fair-minded carefulness. And I think all of those are very attractive qualities uh, to people. And and again, it's it's not easy to do these kinds of things. I mean, I have freely admitted um, I may be in a debate context, and somebody challenges me, and instead of taking the bigger picture and saying, "Well, you know, Dave was right, I, I got that wrong. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it." No, I I oh, I don't want to lose face. Well, you know, these are virtues after all. Um, And we don't want to put selfism on the throne. But these are not easy things to do. Um, I think I think if we communicate to people that we love the truth, that truth is that we value the truth, that we see it as sacred, whether it's truth with a capital T or with a lowercase t, um, and that we're not about winning, we're not about um, uh, you know presenting a a, uh, a way of, of, of winning the big picture. I think that these are, these are very, very important uh, elements. Now, let me, let me tie one last thing in, and then we can wrap up. Um, there's a philosopher down the freeway here at Azusa Pacific University. His name is Joshua Rasmussen. He uh, did his doctoral work at Notre Dame. Uh, I follow him on Twitter, and I've, I've met Josh. I gave a talk at uh, uh, APU, Azusa Pacific University, a Christian college in the suburb of Los Angeles here in Southern California. So I, I went to APU and gave a talk, and he came to my talk, and uh, had, we had an opportunity to dialogue, and I, I was very impressed with um, the way he thinks and the way he handles himself. But uh, Josh said this, he said, there is a satisfaction, I've noticed, in treating others well in conversation, no strings attached. That is, that is not available in the project of trying to change their minds. Now, this is the last point I want to make, and it, it'll be a point we'll come back to, but, you know, um, sometimes when you're an apologist, you are perceived as your goal is to win the argument. Your goal is to get somebody to accept your view no matter what. And I think Rasmussen here is is making a, a really important point, and that is sometimes when we have dialogue with each other, we want to convey the idea that, yeah, I believe Christianity is truth, but I haven't stopped thinking. And I am though I am committed to the truth of the Great Commission, and I believe that what what I believe in as a Christian, I I believe is the truth, um, I don't necessarily, Joe, want all of my dialogues, interactions, and discussions to be of an evangelistic, apologetic sort. Sometimes I, I just want to sit down and hear somebody out and, and to explore these ideas. But whenever it's a debate and whenever it becomes apologetic in, in orientation, um, it, it, it seems at times to bring out the idea that I want to win. I want to communicate to my non-Christian friends that, that I respect them. I may not always agree with them. In fact, I, I won't always agree with them, uh, but I also want to communicate to them that I love my neighbor and I respect my neighbor. And uh, I also recognize that um, I can be wrong. And, and so these qualities of humility need to be, need to be part of that. And, and I also want to communicate, look, you're made in the image of God. You are the recipients of part of the revelation that I'm talking about, and you are the recipient of common grace, and so you're not only going to get some things right. There may be times where the non-Christian can actually teach the Christian. Mm. Now, does that is that the way you perceive Christians coming across? <laughs> um, mm. I don't always perceive it that way. I mean, mm-hmm. I've used the analogy: if I jumped on a bus and I bumped into to, um, uh, in Einstein, I, I would. I don't think I. I don't think the first thing out of my mouth would be, uh, "How long have you been suppressing the truth and unrighteous?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I think first I'd say, "How in the world did you come up with the idea that that?" mathematical ideas in your mind could actually correspond to reality. I, I, I think what I'd want to say is, uh, Dr. Einstein, it, is math invented or is it discovered? Hmm. And, and, and again, I, I think that's what Joshua Rasmussen is getting at, that uh, there is a satisfaction, he says, I've noticed, in treating others well in the conversation, no strings attached, that is not available in the project of trying to change their minds. Um, I, I also want to communicate to my fellow human beings that I, I value them and I respect them. I, I'm tough-minded. I like to think I'm tough-minded, uh, but everything is not necessarily a debate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great stuff, Ken. Thank you for your thoughts. I feel like I've been in the classroom here and uh, been taking mental notes and learned a lot. Very good practical helps uh, for me, and I'm sure listeners uh, would agree. Um, any anything along the lines of reading material you want? You know, anything in one of your books you can recommend?
1: Yeah, I I think probably a couple a couple books that. The, these ideas would come across in a, a World of Difference, of course, is the my worldview book. And so a lot of these ideas, in fact, uh, part of the chart I was looking at in comparing uh, Socrates and the sophists, that comes right out of uh, my book, A World of Difference. And then I think some of these ideas as well uh, come in uh, Christianity cross-examined. So I think those are two that would correspond. And of course I have a blog and sometimes I blog about these ideas that, and not all of them make it, make their way into my books.
0: Yeah. That blog is reflectionsbyken.wordpress.com. Check that out. Ken releases a blog every couple of weeks and you can comment there as well. So be sure and visit uh, that site. Uh, let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. In fact, here's a comment that has come in regarding another one of your books. This book, Classic Christian Thinkers, was used for a monthly chapter meeting and has been the source of many great discussions. It lends context to ideas, which brings them to life. Nice work, Ken. That's from Wally Keller. Yeah. So Thank you, Wally, for that uh, comment. And There's another encouragement to pick up that book, uh, Classic Christian Thinkers. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this uh, podcast. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking.
2: Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasonsably programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.